First, let me state the obvious. I am no expert on the topic of race. I am no sociologist, anthropologist, or historian. I'm a theologian, a pastor, and a student of scripture. Second, I'm white. I know you can see that, but I realize that my whiteness limits what I have seen or experienced on the subject of race. Someone has said that talking about race is like inviting folks to a party that isn't any fun. You've been to a party like that before, and it didn't go well. It was awkward or uncomfortable, and so when you get invited again, you say, oh, thank you so much. We would love to, but we already have plans. Maybe next time. When I was a college student at the University of Texas, I met my friend Claudia. She was about 10 years my senior, an African-American woman who was a university chaplain. She mentored me and helped me apply to divinity school. She sent me off to visit Yale and encouraged me to become a student there. After I went to Yale, she went to California to work at a church, and it was not a good fit for her. She would call me and tell me how much she missed being a chaplain. And so one day when I was a student at Yale, I called her and I said, Claudia, there's an opening for a chaplain at Yale. You're going to come here and take this job, and when you do, we'll be roommates. I left her that voicemail. She applied. She got the job. She found an apartment. She mailed me the lease. I was at home that summer living with my mom and dad in Texas. And when I got home from work one day, the lease was sitting on the kitchen counter, and mom and dad were furious. You are not going to live with a person of another skin color. I didn't know what to do. I went to see the pastor at my church. I explained my dilemma, my love and respect for my parents. And I remember the pastor looking at me and asking, what do you think? And so I moved in with Claudia. Today's scripture from Ephesians describes the dividing wall of hostility separating Jews and Gentiles in the time of Jesus. Some think that this dividing wall was an actual physical wall or fence around the temple to keep out women and Gentiles from the holiest holy spot in Jerusalem. Some scholars say that there was inscribed upon this wall this saying, no man of another race is to enter within the fence or enclosure around the temple. Others speculate that the wall that is referred to in Ephesians is not so much a physical wall that keeps people out, but rather the rules and regulations, such as the dietary laws that were practiced by the Jewish folks, but not the Gentile folks. But regardless of what the wall was, this hostility and animosity was fierce between those who were from a Jewish background and those who were from a Gentile background. Ephesians claims that Christ has broken down this dividing wall between the groups. What do you think? Is it down? Or does it still exist today. We can all probably point to places where the wall has come down in our own lifetimes, and we can probably all point to places where unity has not yet reached 
its fulfillment in our midst. I think about my friend Sherry, who told me recently about a trip that she made to Cane Ridge. Cane Ridge is the log cabin church in Kentucky where our own denomination, the Christian Church Disciples of Christ, was born in the 1800s. Now, Sherry had been to Cane Ridge before with some fellow church members from her African-American congregation, but on this trip more recently, she was traveling with a group of denominational leaders, and on that day, all the board members with her were white. The tour guide stood up in the Cane Ridge log cabin and began describing the birth of our wonderful denomination and how we as the Christian church did away with all that divided people, especially those creeds and denominational backgrounds, and we brought people together in one holy unity. And while the tour guide was talking, my friend Sherry began to look at the balcony, and she couldn't figure out how folks got up into that balcony. And so she went outside and she saw the ladder leaning against the building, and she climbed up it, and she went in the narrow passageway, and she sat down in the balcony, and she realized that while our founders were preaching unity, her relatives were seated there with the slaves in the balcony. And my friend Sherry did not want to mention any of her discomfort that day to her fellow board members, so she remained silent. But even her silence is a reminder that this unity is still elusive. While we celebrate Christian unity as Christian Church Disciples of Christ members, we also know that there is a part of our Christian history that has been thwarting this very unity that Christ talked about. Throughout history, people have used scripture to justify slavery and racial segregation. There's a recent book out by Tanner Colby called Some of My Best Friends Are Black. In that book, he reports that there was a Nashville clergyman named Buckner H. Payne who sold his own translation of the Bible in which the devil in the Garden of Eden was not a serpent but a Negro man-beast. Our own denominational leaders, Alexander Campbell and Barton Stone, both owned slaves though both set them free. Both of our founders preached and wrote about the abolition of slavery. They advocated for freedom, though Campbell wrote, I love the black man, but I love the white man more. And Stone wrote a series of essays critiquing slavery, but he published the first three in a leading Christian journal, and then people began canceling their subscriptions to the journal, and so he ceased writing the essays. You might tell me that that was the 1800s, and this is now. So let's fast forward 100 years to the founding of our own church here in the Country Club District of Kansas City, Missouri. This church was a part of a housing development that was plotted in the early 1920s. Many of us, including me, live in one of the surrounding housing developments, either on the Missouri or Kansas sides. Our property deeds included this sentence. None of said land may be conveyed to, used, owned, or occupied by Negroes as owners or tenants. While these racial covenants were used frequently during that period of history, 
Kansas City was unique because instead of applying these racial covenants to a specific lot, we developed a practice of applying these racial covenants to the entire subdivision, not just one home, and then it was written into the covenants that they would renew automatically every 25 years unless a large group of homeowners got together five years in advance and overruled them. Kansas City was admired throughout the country for its neighborhood developments, and the Ladies' Home Journal called us a lesson for all cities. Again, we could say that this is old news and it doesn't matter now. But consider this statistic, which was in Tanner's book. In 1946, you could buy a home in Prairie Village for $6,000. And today, that home is worth $375,000. And so consider for us here today, our African-American neighbors did not have the option of this investment, which yielded an increase of over 500%. Though I grew up in Texas, I know that my family benefited from the value of real estate increasing in the neighborhoods where we could purchase. Like the Jews and the Gentiles of the first century, my point is that you and I, like they, inherited a system, a cultural and national system that has woven us together into patterns that keep us separated. Though individually and as a congregation, we are committed to loving our neighbor, we are sometimes blind to the systems that keep us divided. Even our subconscious thought often propels us to behave in ways that keep us separated and divided, though that would not be our expressed intent. I think of Desmond Tutu, an African bishop who won the Nobel Peace Prize for his work in racial reconciliation in South Africa. In 2014, Bishop Tutu recalled getting on a plane in Nigeria to travel to the World Council of Churches meeting. He noticed when he boarded the plane that there were two black pilots in the cockpit. And Bishop Tutu, who's quite short, says he grew two inches taller. And he thought, wee, this is fantastic, because he had been taught as a child that black people cannot fly planes. But he said, we can. And Tutu said they experienced a very smooth takeoff. And they were up in the air. And then they experienced the mother and father of all turbulence. It was awful. It was scary. And the first thought that popped into his mind was, hey, there's no white man in the cockpit. Is this plane going to go down? We all, you see, we all have some kind of unconscious bias. In her book, I'm Still Here, Austin Channing Brown recalls that when she was a little girl, she became curious about why her parents had named her Austin. And so she pestered her parents. They didn't want to tell her. They told her, when you're older, we'll explain your name. No, she said, I want to know. And so they explained to her that when she grew up and she went for a job interview, they wanted to make sure that she would always at least get granted an interview. And she says, now that I'm an adult, I can't tell you how many times I have been standing in the lobby and someone came out to get me for an interview and they looked right past me because no one could believe that Austin Brown was a black woman and not a white man. As Americans, it is so easy for us to become frustrated about the lack of racial harmony, 
Regardless of your perspective on the issue, we all get frustrated from time to time that things are not further along. As Christians, we wonder where is that unity that was promised in the book of Ephesians? But we misread the scripture if we hear that unity as something that we earn or accomplish. Ephesians describes a unity that comes to us as a gift. Ephesians says, Christ is our peace. In his flesh, he has made both groups into one and broken down the dividing wall that is the hostility between us. What happened for those first century Christians is that whether they were Jewish Christians or Gentile Christians, Christ gave them access to the one God, to the experience of the Holy Spirit. Standing in the shadow of the cross of Jesus, there was something far more important to any of them than their ethnic or cultural background. What they discovered was that they could come together out of love for Jesus and that when they did, they experienced God in a new way. The Spirit of God came alive in their community. It was pure joy. Have you ever had one of those moments when you experienced that holy unity of God that came to you despite your best effort at keeping that dividing wall firmly in place? I think of the story that John Powell tells. He's a professor of law at the University of California now, but in his days as a student at Stanford, he joined the Black Student Union. He was a founding member, and he said that they made a pact that they would only interact with other black students. But shortly afterwards, he was walking across campus, and he saw a blind woman walking, and she got caught up in a group of bicycles, and the bicycles began collapsing on the ground. And he thought, well, that's so sad, but he kept walking because she was a white blind woman. And she continued to get into trouble and knock down more bicycles, and there was no one around to help her, and so he couldn't help it. He had to go back. He had to help her. He got her back on the path, and then he went back to the Black Student Union, and he said, I refuse to abide by this rule. I cannot do it. For Powell, he said, this was a defining moment, and he understood for the first time the power of human relationships, not just with those like him. After helping her, he could see the power of God's love breaking down the dividing walls. That spirit of Christ rises up within us. We all have moments, I think, when we realize something anew and the spirit of God comes to life between us. That happened recently for my friend John. John grew up as the son of missionaries. He's a great guy. He worked as a psychologist. But John's passion has always been riding his tractor, his used tractor that he likes to tinker with, and restoring old cars, buying junky cars, and putting them back together in his barn. Recently, his son and daughter-in-law adopted a little boy named Theo, who is biracial. And when they adopted him, John realized that he was not proud of his entire past. And so he wrote Theo a long letter in which he says, Theo, it's not that I'm consciously a racist. 
I accept that I can't escape, escape the possibility of having some bad, deeply buried attitudes and feelings toward black people that have been woven into my mind as a white man growing up in a culture that has treated people of color so badly. And then he begins to lament that there could be a time when someone would treat Theo without the same justice and kindness that they would treat his grandpa, John. And he begins to worry that there might even be a time when he would say something to his grandson that would prove offensive. And so he writes to Theo, I look forward, Theo, to the day that I can get on my tractor and turn the wheel over to you. I'm excited about getting a go-kart for you someday because, you know, I'm a car guy and I know one when I see one and you're a car guy too. He says, I hope I live long enough to come along with you and your mom and dad when you buy your first car. He realized that there was some holy unity binding them together, some greater love that made them into a dwelling place for God. A couple of years ago, maybe just a year and a half ago now, I had a day or two with my friend Claudia who had been my roommate more than 30 years ago. I don't know why she told me this, but Claudia said, hey, did I ever tell you what your dad said to me? What? I don't know what you're talking about, I said. She said, well, on the day that you moved out of our apartment in Connecticut, the car was loaded. You were in the car ready to go. Your dad came back into the house he looked at me and he said, Claudia, I just want to thank you so much for everything you have done to take good care of our daughter. My dad said that? Are you sure, Claudia? Yes, she said. For the Holy Spirit works among us and makes us one. God offers that same gift to all of us today. Will we receive it if we say yes, if we decide that the cross of Christ is what makes us all one? We will keep having some very awkward conversations with people who are different from us with the sole goal of trying to understand one another's perspectives. And we will trust that God indeed continues to break down the dividing walls between us and make of us also a dwelling place for God. We will stumble, no doubt, but the vision of unity is not merely ours, it is God's.